0: Listening to the Maniculum, pointing the finger at the Middle Ages. We bring you the choicest medieval nonsense. Discuss and evaluate it, then pillage it for our own geeky purposes. Alrighty! Welcome back, listeners, and happy holidays. Today is our Christmas episode, or I suppose just our winter solstice episode for Whatever wintry holiday you so enjoy, and yeah, we are your hosts, Zoe and Mac, and we dive into weird medieval tales and tear them apart, contextualize them for you, and teach you how to turn them into D and D modules, plots, characters, NPCs, narratives for whatever creative story you're writing, and just educate you on how weird the Middle Ages are. And so we're gonna do that today. With a Christmas-themed episode, which you've been extraordinarily excited about for a a few weeks now.
1: Yes, because this turned out to be much weirder and some parts much more fun than I was expecting. Ooh, okay. So, first of all, this is probably the most Christmassy of our Christmas-themed episodes, because today we are reading... From the Golden Legend, which is not particularly Christmassy. But the section of the Golden Legend is the life of St. Nicholas. So today we're going to learn about what they thought about Santa Claus in the 13th century. I've forgotten when it's written. That sounds
0: correct. I mean, all the stories are older than that, but generally speaking. 13th
1: century, yes. All right. Yes. So we're going to hear about 13th (laughs) century St. Nick. Now, of course, this is from a very churchy perspective. Yes, keep that in mind. So while we know that there are elves and reindeer and stuff involved, they tend to not come up. Oh, and of course, this whole time, do please imagine St. Nicholas wearing his traditional Santa hat.
0: I want the whole beard, too. I really hope he has a beard.
1: I'm pretty sure he has a beard in traditional iconography.
0: Okay, cool. As long as he keeps that.
1: Let me look him up, actually. St. Nicholas of Myra... See the one on Wikipedia? Yep, he has a full gray beard.
0: Awesome. That's the one consistency for Santa Claus is the beard.
1: Yes. Now, the Golden Legend erroneously states that Santa Claus is active in Greece and Anatolia, which uh, we know he's from the North Pole, but that's not what it says here, but we're just going to have to go with
0: it. Okay, yeah, understandable. One more thing. Yes.
1: The only public domain translation of the Golden Legend is the one by William Caxton. (laughs)
0: Ah, yes. This is the one that's very fun to read.
1: Yes. For those of you who don't know, William Caxton was an English printer in the 15th century and is largely responsible for the standardization of English spelling such as it is.
0: That's really impressive, actually.
1: Well, it's because uh, in order to make sure that his books could be read by everyone, he had to kind of make a fake dialect that was meshed together out of all the various dialects and thus intelligible to everyone around him, or at least everyone in the London area.
0: So, So you're telling me that the English that we read and speak today, like the spelling, is essentially this guy's made up project?
1: Yeah, it's kind of like a conlang. It's It has changed somewhat. I, I think it's, uh, it's often been modernized based on uh, the work of other grammarians, but the process of standardizing English spelling started with Caxton.
0: It's just making it up. We just make it up. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Hmm. I always knew spelling was
1: fake. Well, it probably made a lot more sense in Caxton's day when people actually pronounced things the way he was spelling them. That's fair. But... Yes. Obviously, language has changed a lot in the past 500 plus years, and so now the spelling and the pronunciation don't match up anymore.
0: Yes. Yeah, that's the weird thing about Middle English and Early Modern English is the... It was very phonetic compared to mm-hmm. what we see today. So if you're ever wondering about those weird spellings, it's because they actually pronounced it that way. Although, I have once heard, and I don't know whether this is true, that the H in like the River Thames... I heard that that was put in there to make it look more fancy. Like it didn't have it. And then some scholars were like, oh, well, I think we ought to do this because it makes us look a bit more French or Latin and educational." So they started spelling it with an H.
1: I have no idea if it's true in that particular case, but that sort of stuff definitely did go on. Yep. For example, the word island has an S in it. So it'll look more like the Latin insula, which is it is not related to. That's so stupid, and I think the same with the B in debt, so it'll look more like debit
0: oh yeah, that one's definitely true. I know that one, yeah, so basically English is made up
1: yes, I mean, English all languages are ultimately arbitrary, but English grammarians in particular were on one,
0: mm-hmm,
1: mostly because they were jealous of Latin, which again English has very little relation to. You'd have to go all the way back to proto-indo-European to link them together.
0: yeah, they're not, they're not related whatsoever. But Latin is the superior
1: language. At least according to the people who decided how English works. Yes, it is. <laughs> Which is why, incidentally, you cannot split an infinitive or end a sentence with a preposition. Not because mm-hmm. that's a bad idea, but just because that's physically impossible that in, Latin. in Latin. And therefore, yep. it shouldn't be allowed in English.
0: Yep. That's funny. I never put that
1: together. Yeah, because infinitives sense, are one word in Latin, so you can't split them.
0: Yeah. To make that clear to those of you who are not as familiar with Latin, it's part of the ending on the word. So Mm -hmm. in English, we make things plural generally by adding an S and we can just add and take off that S, but we don't have an extra word to make something plural. So it's the same thing in Latin. So instead of saying um, in the boat, the whole thing would just be boat with the ending stating in.
1: Yeah. And an infinitive is like the, kind of the dictionary form of the verb, I think I'd say.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And in, in English, you construct an infinitive by putting the word to before it.
0: Yeah, but to it, run, to walk.
1: Right, but in Latin, it's just a, di- a variation of the ending.
0: Yeah, it's like the, the root part, almost, of the yeah. of the word. But anyway, anyway, anyway.
1: The reason I brought up Caxton was because, although I think the version I was reading was slightly modernized, it still wasn't very modern. I wasn't even through the first page before I had made like half a dozen notes on I'm going to need to define this word. I'm going to need to define this word. Oh, boy. So I just decided I was going to try and summarize slash paraphrase it both to make it more comprehensible and to hopefully fit it into one episode.
0: Incredibly reasonable.
1: Because the uh, entry in The Golden Legend on St. Nicholas is 15 pages long. And that was probably a little more than we were going to do. So okay. after my summarizing work, I've got it all the way down to 14 pages.
0: Oh, a new record, I think, for the Golden Legend.
1: <laughs> well, the Golden Legend is all, is already very concise, but also my version is handwritten, so it may, the page count might be different. That's fair. That's fair. All right. I think that's all the, in, the introduction we need. Oh, we should probably say what the Golden Legend is. The Golden Legend is a collection of saints' lives made in the... 13th century by, and I'm going to say his name wrong, but it's Jacobus de Voragine, I believe is how you say it.
0: Yes, yes.
1: It's spelled Jacobus de Voragine, but... (laughs) Yes, yes it is. So let's get started. So it seems the first thing we need to know is the etymology of the name Nicholas.
0: Oh, we're starting with, we're going all the way back. All right.
1: Yes. Jacobus de Voragine asserts that it is from the Greek and means victory of the people.
0: Oh, like from Nike.
1: Yes. I was expecting this to be bullshit because most medieval etymologies kind of are. That's true. But as far as I can tell, it is accurate. Like you said, it's from Nike. And apparently, yeah, Laos does mean of the people. So yeah, fine. Sure. Cool. Jacob goes on to tell us, and I quote, That is victory of sins, which be foul people. Or else, he has said, victory of people, because he ensigned and taught much people by his doctrine to overcome vices and sins.
0: Ah, yes, of course. How could I forget we're reading a uh, Catholic text?
1: I feel like this is an odd bit of medieval exegesis, since assuming his name has a meaning that's relevant to his story feels like we're assuming he's a fictional character.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's, yeah.
1: After all, if he were a real person, which as far as I know, he was, like, this is just a mythologized account of an actual historical figure. Yeah, like St. George. It would be more natural to assume his name was just picked because his parents liked it and not because it has some meaning for his future.
0: I don't know. See, I am absolutely fascinated by the tradition, and this is a worldwide, a universal tradition that I'm fascinated by because I study magic and folklore. So this grabs me because it has something to do with fate. But the idea that your name can become a part of who you are and that it provides attributes to you was like this, this idea was something that they not only believed in, but very clearly acted on like in a lot of the early Protestant, like pilgrim, like Mayflower logs whatever you've got these weird names like Felicity or Providence Virtue Sullivan and you're like what the fuck
1: I like the ones that are whole phrases I think those are great
0: <laughs> Yeah it's very strange
1: Apologies to any Felicities out there I know that name is still in use and honestly has been long enough that it doesn't actually strike me as a weird one although it is definitely part of the virtue name tradition There are actually fewer of these on the Mayflower itself than you might expect. I looked up the list, and the only one I could find is a baby girl named Humility Cooper. Which, poor girl. Also, if you're wondering about the names that are whole phrases, one of the most egregious examples I could find was a 17th century English economist whose supposed name was, and I quote, If Jesus Christ had not died for thee, thou hadst been damned. Spelled with hyphens, so that it's technically all one word. I say supposedly because this person made the very sensible choice of going by Nicholas instead. What his parents thought of that can only be speculated upon, but considering that his father went his whole life going by the name Praise God Barebone, Barebone being their surname, I can only imagine that He wasn't that clear on why anyone would like to get rid of such a name.
0: And eventually in the 1900s, you actually had mothers who gave their sons like joint first names or a first name and a middle name that was like Captain William and then the last name. So his first name is technically Captain, not because he has any rank, but because that gives him like a sense of honor and pride and it it does bump your social status. Or it appears to. But also, again, for those pilgrim names, it's the same thing. It's like, okay.
1: Yeah, I'm definitely naming my first child Reverend Dr. Colonel.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that'll work. (laughs) Can you imagine how horrified that would be? He just goes by Rev his entire life. (laughs) I was thinking we'd
1: call her Kearney.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oof. Oh, man. But yeah, because they they wanted to impart these traits into their kids. And so how better to do that than naming your kid that virtue? So whenever they think on their name, they think about that virtue or whatever. And again, we see this all the way back into biblical names, Islamic names. These are, they're put together. And we can see like Abram becomes Abraham. And there's different names. Like I'm totally blanking on like all of them right now, but hand of God or
1: Israel means wrestles with God. I remember that. It's yeah, Spanish. there you go.
0: Yeah. Wrestles with God. So he's renamed. He's absolutely just entirely renamed Israel because he had an encounter where he wrestled with God. He's fighting with God. And that typifies the nation for essentially the rest of the entire Old Testament. And one could argue up to the present day, but I'll leave that there because that's for theologians and not me. So it's, it's very interesting to me. Because, yeah, sure, I think, one, you pick a name because you like it, but also I think there is something to be said for picking a name due to its virtue or whatever it symbolizes. I think people still do that to this day, maybe not as much to a sanctified degree, but certainly we see that in pretty much every culture throughout history. So that's very, that's cool to me. I always like that.
1: Maybe I'm just biased because I come from a family that just names you after someone else. Like That's fair. I, I have the same name as my dad, who has the same name as his dad, and like virtually all of my all relatives the are named after other relatives. So like, yeah. when Jacob was going on this whole thing about what Nicholas means, I'm like, I bet Nicholas is just the name of his great uncle or something.
0: <laughs> fair enough. See, my name is the Greek word for life. So my parents did choose a rather symbolic name, I suppose. I was also six weeks early, so... Oh. I, I kind of jumped at that. It was like, life? You sure? All right. You're at home. So take that as you will.
1: Technically, my first name, my the, the actual first name, not the one I go by, means well-born, but I have no idea. You'd have to ask my mother how well I was born, but Fair I don't enough. think they had that in mind at all.
0: Probably not. I think a lot of us just choose names we like nowadays.
1: Well, my family is ahead of the curve by choosing names we don't like. I am the fourth person in my family to be named Eugene, and none of us go by Eugene. Or went by.
0: That's fascinating. Why continue that
1: legacy? Because everyone's named after someone else. You can't just make up a new name.
0: Yeah. <laughs> you know what? I don't get it, but I respect it. Yeah. Dedication.
1: I, I am the third consecutive Eugene to, de- to go by McGregor. I didn't even pick that. I was just, it was automatically assumed that like, well, we're not calling the baby Eugene. That's just what it says on his birth certificate.
0: <laughs> I like that. So
1: growing up, I was already Mac.
0: I like it. That's nice.
1: I have a couple cousins who have the same thing where they go by a middle name just since birth because yep. they were given a first name and then and their parents were like, well, we're not really calling them that.
0: Well, right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway. Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Anyway, we're 15 minutes in and all we know is his name. So let's, let's move on. All right. So Jake then cites his sources in his way. Quote. Of course. The doctors of Greece write his legend, and some others say that Methodius the Patriarch wrote it in Greek, and John the Deacon translated it into Latin, and adjusted thereto many things. So, strong start.
0: Yes. Clearly there's not much kept from the original.
1: I have no idea.
0: Because he's changing things. Yeah. That's what he's saying.
1: He seems to think that his source has made changes from the original Greek source. But I don't know if he thinks of that as a problem. Because he just says it happened.
0: I doubt it. But they didn't really mind if you edited things as long as it made it sound cooler and or more Christian.
1: That's fair. So. The actual story. Nicholas was born to a rich family in the Greek city of Patras. Or possibly Patras. However you say the A's. P-A-T-R-A-S. Interestingly... I checked their Wikipedia page and birthplace of Santa Claus is nowhere to be found there. So apparently Uh that's this is not something they're big on. I see. There was a statue of St. Nicholas in Myra, which is where he does his bishopric. Yes. That apparently, according to an article I found, was at one point briefly replaced by a plastic Santa Claus until people protested and they put the original back.
0: Why would you change it into a plastic Santa Claus?
1: I don't know. I mean, the area is not really Christian now. So maybe they don't make a big deal about it, about saints. And they just think it's funny. it's a
0: historical thing. I don't know.
1: I don't know. I I can't even find that much about it. There's a lot of places repeat it, but I could only trace it back to like one short BBC article. So that makes sense. Yeah. I, I really can't, can't say much about it. Anyway, his parents are named Epiphanes. Not like the English word. It's, it's a Greek name. I'm pronouncing it in the same way that you would pronounce Euripides. Ah, yep. And Joanne.
0: I love when that happens. Like you know when you're reading a fantasy book and you, you go through it and it's like it's the little meme where you're like, "Oh, yes, we're traveling with Hersa and also Tim it, like, your name just won't parse the fantasy names, but you see mm-hmm. one name that you recognize and you're like, cool, I got it. That's all I need.
1: <laughs> I mean, to be fair, in this case, Joanne is spelled J-O-H-A-N-E, but it's it's Joanne.
0: I like it still.
1: That's good. It is specified they were young when he was born and after his birth, they were, quote, continent and, quote, led a heavenly life, which I think means no siblings.
0: That's a weird way to say it.
1: Yeah, but like, how else are you going to parse? They were continent after his birth and led a heavenly life. That sounds like they're not f***ing anymore. Yeah. No more kids. No more kids. And since they were young, I don't think there was one before him. Yeah. No. (laughs) Well, he was a weird kid, so that might have been part of it. So let's get into that.
0: Yes, indeed.
1: Apparently he was notable even as an infant. When given his first bath, he stood upright in the basin.
0: That's already weird. Yeah. Yeah.
1: He would also... Only breastfeed twice a week, once on Wednesday and once on Friday. So I think his first miracle was surviving infancy. Yeah. As a child, he refused to play like other kids. So maybe part of the whole Santa Claus thing is catching up on that. Like now he wants to help the kids play because he never did it as a kid.
0: I like that. He's healing his inner child.
1: But when he was a kid, instead of playing, he spent all his time hanging around the church. Nerd. Or, as Caxton would have it, he, quote, haunted gladly holy church. I just like the phrase haunted gladly.
0: That's a good one. That's one to use for sure.
1: After this sketch of his childhood, the next bit starts with, when his father and mother were departed out of this life. So we don't know more about Epiphanes than Joanne. There's no indication of how much time has passed, but I'm going to assume he's an adult now.
0: Okay, seems fair.
1: He's hanging around wondering what to do with his inheritance when he hears that one of his neighbors... A nobleman fallen on hard times is planning to put his daughters into sex work to support the family.
0: Which is not something you would generally want to do in that day and age.
1: Yes, it's... it's. What bothered me about this was that it's completely unclear what the daughter's opinions on this are. Like, are they being forced into sex work? Was it their idea? It could be anywhere on that spectrum, and we it just doesn't say.
0: That's fair. I would not lean towards the idea that it was their idea simply because sex work in that day and age was pretty brutal and there were not a lot of good ways to protect oneself against the variety of you know stds issues abuses like brothels in the middle ages were brutal
1: brutal really i don't know much about this maybe we should do a special episode
0: we might have to there's a there's a very interesting article that one of my professors at Trinity wrote on brothels in medieval England. And like it was hard to read simply because of the few firsthand accounts that we have mostly written by men who visited and wrote about that experience. And I think maybe a few from those women, but it was it was not a great place
1: to be. See, I just assumed it was probably better than it is now because at least it's legal so they don't have to worry about getting hassled by cops.
0: I mean, I'll have to do some more digging on it, but at least for, I guess this would be like 14th, 15th century medieval England, it was not a place that you wanted to be. That's fair. But again, then there's like concubines in the East who have a wonderful life who like are lauded in society so i don't know what it's like in myra but
1: (laughs) ditto a lot of the west uh pre christianity there were like temple prostitutes and stuff and like they were pretty respected so Mm -hmm. i feel like the issue is going to be like with the patriarchal kind of construct that comes with christianity taking over europe yeah but so
0: i don't know we should we should do an episode on that yeah that would be an interesting one we should
1: do that sometime
0: yeah it's no matter what i think in any day and age it's Varied and can span the spectrum from like a liberating thing to do versus like a very oppressive thing to have to do. I'm
1: going to say if we do do a special episode, you should be the one presenting because I feel like it would be weird to have a dude doing the talking. Fair enough. Anyway, so this is happening. There's this nobleman. Let's assume it's his idea. He's wanting his daughters to go into sex work to support the family. But again, no idea. They're given no agency here. The only thing we're told about them is that at this point they're virgins. That is the only piece of information we get. Okay. Anyway, Nicholas, quote, had great horror of this villainy, unquote. Sure. <laughs> Though it's unclear if he's concerned about the agency of the daughters. I was I was very fixated on this when I wrote this. I was like, <laughs> what do they want?
0: I mean, that's a good thing to know. See, and this is this is one of the interesting things is if you're in a good program in, I guess, any kind of historical study, you should always look for the gaps in the narrative. Who is not talking? And there's some really good research to be done there. Who has a silent voice? Also, game devs, that's probably a cool thing to include in your world building. Agency? Well, yeah, but also when you're crafting a world, who has, like, who dictates the government? Who has a voice in that society and who doesn't? Because then you have a very interesting dynamic for your players to, you know, get into. Are they on the side of. I guess whatever dominant culture there is or do they even see do they recognize that underlying underground culture that's sort of pushed to the sides so that's a great place to get NPCs from that's a great place to create character backstories from and a great place to get quest hooks from because then you can start to get into I mean I love intrigue and ethical questions so One of my favorites is, okay, so a thief, like again, the very, very basic one, like a thief steals bread, he's starving. Do you punish the thief? Do you let him get away with it? Like, what does that look like? Who has a voice? In this situation, the cop has a voice, but you as a player or as an adventurer or as a hero, you can give the thief a voice by standing up, protecting him, XYZ, whatever. So just like how we, when we look at these sort of texts, and Mac here is looking at these women who don't have a voice and he's advocating for them, thinking about them, you can do the same thing as a player and as a DM, is give those people a voice and start to bring those questions to bear in your games at home.
1: I like this interpretation of the the point I fixated on. (laughs) So to recap... Nicholas is upset by this, either because he doesn't like these women being forced into something or because he's just opposed to sex work or both. Or whatever, yes. So he decides to throw, quote, a mass of gold wrapped in a cloth into his neighbor's house by night.
0: Ah, I see.
1: It does not say whether he used the chimney, but I like to think he did.
0: (laughs) Yes, precisely.
1: The neighbor is thrilled and decides to use it, or at least part of it, as a dowry for his eldest daughter. She gets married, like, immediately, like, in the same sentence, which seems sketchy to me, but whatever. Yeah. A little later, so after the daughter's wedding, but, like, not long. Like, it's, it, it sounds like it happens immediately. hmm Nicholas does it again. We're not told whether this is intended to contribute to the second daughter's dowry, but I feel like that's probably the intent, because why else would he split it up?
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: The neighbor, of course, decides he's going to Zoe, would you like to guess the neighbor's reaction? I will give you a hint.
0: He's going to use it for his second daughter's dowry.
1: That is not mentioned. <gasps> the neighbor's decision is and it, this is a staple of children's Christmas stories. So, what do you think? Oh no.
0: Wait, what? A staple of
1: That's that's why I stopped here. Like if you just think of what's something that would happen in a Christmas story at this point.
0: Like, he gets, he sees the money, so he goes out and, like, buys, buys gifts for his family? Or he gives it to
1: his neighbors? That would also be nice, but no, this isn't Scrooge. He decides that he's going to wait up for Santa Claus.
0: Oh, really? Yes. (laughs) Oh my gosh, I didn't even think of that. Like, that is such a staple of
1: Christmas, but I was just like, this is a medieval tale. It does not say Santa Claus, but he's going to wait up at night to see who's doing this.
0: Yes, I love it. Incredible.
1: He doesn't have like a specific night to target, but I guess he figures that, you know, three daughters, three gifts. Besides, everything comes in threes in these stories, so it's only a matter of time.
0: Right, precisely.
1: A few days later, Nicholas says it again. The neighbor apparently failed to stay up, oh, no. but is waiting in the right spot because the sound of gold hitting the floor wakes him.
0: I mean, it's a hefty sound. Like, that's a that's a loud thump.
1: Yeah, so I'm, I'm imagining that he's, like, sitting in a chair near, I guess, the fireplace, since I'm assuming this <laughs> is all coming through the chimney. And he tried to stay awake, but he fell asleep. But then he hears it falling in, and it wakes him up.
0: So far, this has a lot more to do with Christmas than I thought it would.
1: I think that this particular anecdote is where a lot of the Santa Claus stuff comes from.
0: That makes sense.
1: Okay. Anyway, the neighbor chases Nicholas... Eventually catches him and tries to kiss his feet in gratitude.
0: I get that. Makes sense. A little weird, but makes sense. Like, again, this is one of our culture things that we don't get.
1: Nicholas is not into foot stuff (laughs) and just wants him to keep this whole business a secret. Yes. Which he clearly does not do because here we are 1700 years later telling you about it. RIP. This whole business, incidentally, is why St. Nicholas is sometimes cited as the patron saint of sex workers.
0: I like that. That's really cool.
1: I think that's unofficial because I can't find it in the Catholic Saints Encyclopedia and it's not on Wikipedia, but I have heard that before.
0: I mean, they also killed Joan of Arc and then made her a saint. So I'm kind of not surprised that they wouldn't include a sex work saint in there, you know.
1: I actually did some looking into it and there is another saint listed as the patron of sex workers. Oh, okay. I forget his name. Starts with a V. Uh, Let me Google this real quick so I can give the name. But it's not as nice a story.
0: Oh, yeah. Well, there's at least two.
1: Saint Vitalis of Gaza is the patron saint of day laborers and sex workers because what he would do was he was a monk. Mm -hmm. And he would engage in day labor and then take his wages from the day and give them to a sex worker in exchange for her listening to him preach about how she should stop being a sex worker.
0: (laughs) I mean... At least she still got paid.
1: Yeah. So like, I think it's fine. But also, yeah, he, he feels he feels a little judgy. And I don't, I'm not sure I like that.
0: Yeah. Like, you ever hear, hear those stories about like Karens who go in and instead of giving a tip, they're like, they leave a tract instead.
1: Not only have I heard those stories, I've gotten one of those tracts.
0: Oh, my gosh. For
1: real? I've worked a number of service jobs.
0: Oh, that's so scummy.
1: I know. It's terrible.
0: That's so bad. Ugh, don't do that. I mean, I probably don't have to tell our listeners that, but, like, mm, okay. Anyway. Yeah,
1: no, I, I got one of those uh, things that looks like it's a bill, and then you open it, and it's just, like, Bible and verses.
0: Ugh, that's so scummy.
1: It's terrible.
0: Like, if you're gonna do missions work...
1: I mean, first of all, don't, because it's basically colonialism, but...
0: Yeah, it is, uh yeah.
1: But I'm sorry, I spoke over you. What were you doing?
0: Oh, no, no. Well, like... I have a variety of opinions on this, but like, please make sure that you're not taking away people's salary. Because when you work a service job where you're reliant on tips, in some states, they don't have to pay you the minimum wage.
1: Most states, I think, actually.
0: Yeah, like they can pay you two bucks an hour. And since you're gonna hit minimum wage through tips, they count that as being... Your wage.
1: Yeah. Traditionally, the tipped minimum wage is exactly enough to offset taxes and social security and stuff.
0: Yeah. It's, it's gross. It's really gross.
1: It is. Yeah. It's a feature of the United States labor system, I guess I would say, that I is guess. horribly exploitative.
0: It's really f-
1: like, of course, tip your service workers, absolutely tip your service workers, but then go to their yeah. boss and say, f- can pay your service workers. So yeah, for real. Stop offloading that onto your customers.
0: Yeah. Anyway. <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway. Yes. Way off track. Where was I? Okay. Yeah. New anecdote. We finished that. Yes. One. The bishop of Myra dies, and the church needs to pick a new one. Somehow, this all comes down to the opinion of one bishop. It is not clear why. It just says he had quote great authority and quote all of the election was in him.
0: All of the election.
1: That's election with an L.
0: Thank you. I think we needed that one.
1: (laughs) I think we didn't, but I wanted to put it in there. (laughs) (laughs) Fair enough. So this bishop hears a disembodied voice the next night.
0: Because of course he did.
1: The text does not say that the voice sounds suspiciously like Nicholas hollering down the chimney, but I'm going to assume it does. Of course. The voice says that the bishop should go to the church doors at Matins. Which, depending on what system you're using, is either midnight or dawn or possibly somewhere in between.
0: I've always heard it as dawn.
1: I think it generally is, but I looked it up and apparently it's pretty inconsistent. Hmm. Let me Google this again just to make sure. Because Matins is a service of morning prayer.
0: Yeah, so I thought it was like right like before dawn, essentially, was the only requirement.
1: Yeah, the the original, according to Wikipedia, at least, the earliest use of the term was in reference to the canonical hour, also called the Vigil, which was originally celebrated by monks from about two hours after midnight.
0: That's right.
1: So it's somewhere in the wee hours of the morning slash possibly Mm -hmm. at dawn. So, Matins, go to the doors at Matins, and the first person named Nicholas that he sees should be bishops right away. That seems pretty suspicious, bro. So I already had the Catholic Saints Encyclopedia pulled up because you can check it out on archive.org as I like a library book. So I had already pulled that up to see whether he was the patron saint of sex workers. So I checked it again about this story. In their version, the people of Myra just decide that the first person to walk into the church is going to be the new bishop. First like person. that, curious.
0: I get. Yeah.
1: Yes. Which is how we got several schisms about whether Mittens the Cat or Little Susie was the best choice. (laughs) Of course. Since neither of them are technically eligible. Yes. There was also, of course, a third group that said neither, a fourth group that said both, and a fifth group that said Jesus was from God, not of God, and we need to have that (laughs) argument all over again.
0: Oh, stop it. Stop it. Don't bring that one up. They'll come for us.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But it seems like this is a weird middle ground is the point between that story and someone said Nicholas should be the bishop is the first person named Nicholas you see. Yeah. At this place.
0: That's oddly specific, but I'll give it to him, I guess. See, I think this is where the Roman, like the Latin editing came in. They're like, that's too complicated.
1: Yeah, could be. But anyhow, he gets this instruction. So at Matins, the various bishops who have been discussing the issue gather around the doors and boom, there's our Nicky trying to look real casual. Of course. I would too, if I were him. The bishop asks his name, and he, quote, simple as a dove, unquote, says he's Nicholas. Of course. They tell him he's bishop, and despite his protests, they make it official right then and there. Now, in the version I've imagined, the protests are for show. Because obviously he was just shouting down the chimney, and that's why he knew to be where he was. And that's why it says the first person named Nicholas, because he was like, the first person. And then he thought, what if someone else just happens to be there? and
0: Right, right. He's covering all his bases.
1: This is the actual text. And Sith, they brought him to the church, howbeit that he refused it strongly, yet they set him in the chair. So I want us all to imagine a bunch of bishops popping out of a church, grabbing the first rando they see. Telling him he's a bishop now, and then dragging him, kicking and screaming and biting and clawing back into the church and forcing him into the bishop's seat.
0: I love it. Like, perfect for a horror game.
1: I feel like this is one of the many ways in which the medieval church was like the Borg.
0: Yes. (laughs) Terrifying.
1: Anyway, so that's the story of how Nicholas, who was not part of the church until just this moment, became Bishop of Myra.
0: You know, I did not expect that. Like... He was doing good stuff on his own, but he had no... Like, he's just some guy.
1: Yeah. Like, he he was very devout, apparently hung around the church a lot as a child, but he was a member of the Idle Rich. Like, the only thing he'd done of note was, like, some anonymous philanthropy, and that was yeah. just to his neighbor. Huh. Now, Now he's bishop. Kind of sketch. So Nicholas bishops for a while, and eventually attends the Council of Nicaea.
0: Yes, I do remember he was there, yes.
1: Yes, and... I made a note here. The story that he punched someone at the council over doctrinal differences is not mentioned in this text.
0: Oh, come on.
1: And Wikipedia calls it, quote, a late and unsubstantiated legend, unquote, which disappointed me. Lame. Just so you know, there is a story that Santa Claus punched someone at the council of Nicaea.
0: I stick with it. I I stand by it.
1: (laughs) I do, too. I like that better. And it as we're going to see, it actually kind of fits with his with his whole thing.
0: I like it. All right. I mean, to be fair, he was like skulking around town at night, chucking gold into people's houses.
1: Yeah, he's got a vigilante street. Vigilante, mm-hmm. however you say that. But the reason we're told he's at the council is that while he's busy at the council, and there are witnesses attesting that he is at the council, Yes. some sailors elsewhere, presumably back in Myra, pray to him. And I'm going to quote this bit directly, because I like the turns of phrase. Okay. On a day, as a ship with mariners were in perishing on the sea, they prayed and required devoutly Nicholas, servant of God, saying, colon, if those things that we have heard of thee said be true, prove them now. And Anon, a man appeared in his likeness, and said, Lo, see ye me not. Ye called me. And then he began to help them in their exploit of the sea, and anon the tempest ceased.
0: See ye me not? I know, right? So like, is this like a blesser of those who believe and have not seen thing?
1: I think this is just how he's saying like, is this thing on? <laughs> Hello? You see me, right? That's Amazing.
0: I mean, they did. They did ask him to prove himself. So, like, as a as a newly begotten saint, I would also be a little bit concerned about that.
1: I mean, he's not technically a saint yet. He can't be. He's not dead.
0: That's true. Well, as a newly made miracle worker, person of import.
1: Yeah, I find it's weird that they're praying to a living bishop at all. But apparently, that's the thing that people did.
0: Yeah. Again, I don't understand the whole saints thing.
1: I don't. At least they're dead, what's the bishop gonna do?
0: yeah, that makes more yeah, yeah i don't get I don't quite
1: get this one. I mostly included the whole quotation because I like that the ship having trouble is the mariners were in perishing on the sea, I and like that, that getting the ship back under control is their exploit of the sea. I like both of those
0: ten out of ten
1: so Mariners are having trouble. they pray Nicholas shows up and helps them out, nice. And this is definitely like some kind of like projection because everyone knows he's at Nicaea. There are witnesses. Right.
0: So he's like astral projecting across the continent.
1: Or maybe he can bilocate, which I think is a thing that some saints are are credited with.
0: Well, there is um, the account. It's one of my favorite accounts in the Bible of, oh, I can't remember who it is. It's either one of the apostles or one of the disciples, but there's a guy, like a Carthaginian or an African, a Libyan, someone who's like riding along in a carriage. And then he's trying to figure out the word of God. And this apostle is like walking along and he's like, Hey, do you know what you're reading? And the guy's like, not really. I don't understand it. So he teaches him and the Libyan is like, Oh, I want to be baptized now. So he baptizes him. And then the apostle just poof disappears and is seen like 500 miles away. That same day, or the next day, or something like that, and it's like a biblical account of teleportation. And there's not really another way to read it. I love that so much.
1: I mean, basically, although I guess from the Libyan's point of view, he was just baptized by a ghost, which I also like.
0: That's pretty cool too. Because like he doesn't imagine
1: he was was seen somewhere else five hundred miles away. He just he he disappears.
0: He's out. He's gone. (laughs) Boom. But yeah, so there is a biblical precedent for this.
1: After they get back to Myra, I guess the council is over now because Nicholas is is back in Myra also because they go to his church. Yes, and are all that's him, that's the guy. Even though mm-hmm. they've never mm-hmm. seen him in person before, so they're like, no, really, we saw that guy specifically appear when we prayed to Saint Nicholas. And oh, you're saying that or Bishop Nicholas that guy is Saint Nick. <laughs> oh, you're, oh, you're saying that is Bishop Nicholas? Well, then there we go. And Nicholas denies all credit. Bruh. Yeah, I don't know if he's humble or if he's just gaslighting these sailors.
0: Well, what's the benefit to to not taking credit? Like, I I get the whole deferral of like, oh no. This
1: yeah, is I mean, fun. I think in this case the the benefit is that you seem humble because everyone's going to assume you did it, so you may as well go like, oh no, it wasn't me.
0: Then who was it, bro? See, that's when I would be worried about like, is there a demon impersonating me?
1: Honestly, a lot of Saint Nicholas's stories would be explained if there was like a doppelganger just popping around. Like even the Maybe last it's, one, like. The prestige. like like, he doesn't, he can't be 100% sure that the person he catches up with and the person who threw the thing in his chimney were the same person. And when he catches up with That's him, he's true. like, don't tell anyone. Like, So maybe there's another, maybe there's a doppelganger who's just going around doing good deeds in Nicholas's name.
0: That's pretty funny. That would be hilarious, though.
1: So I have another anecdote.
0: All this
1: right. is all just a list of anecdotes. They don't transition well. They just one stops and another starts.
0: Just this, the compilation of Nick's
1: adventures. Yes, So Myra is experiencing a famine, and ships laden with grain show up in the harbor. But they're not here to give the grain to Myra. They're just on their way somewhere else. Makes sense. Nick goes and asks the sailors for their grain to help ease the famine, but they don't want to help because the grain is bound for, quote, the emperor in Alexandria, unquote. Whichever emperor this might be. I checked. Mm -hmm. This is during the reign of Constantine, but I don't know why he's in Alexandria.
0: Yeah, that would be a bit weird. Yeah. Maybe it's like, like a mini king no idea. Huh, okay.
1: What do I have written here? Uh, what I have written here is I don't know why he's in Alexandria or if there's another emperor kicking around. <laughs> Who knows? But anyway, apparently the grain has already been weighed and measured, and Alexandria will know if there's any missing.
0: Yeah, I wouldn't want to deal with that if I were the sailors either.
1: Nicholas says, don't worry about it. And apparently that's good enough, because...
0: I'm a bishop. I have a permit.
1: He has a bishoping permit.
0: This just says that you can do what you want. (laughs) Yes, correct.
1: (laughs) Bruh. I mean, he says it in a more archaic way, but he he basically just says, don't worry about it, it'll be fine. And they're like, okay. Sure, bruh. And so they hand over enough grain to sustain the province for two years.
0: How much grain is on that boat? That's a lot of grain.
1: I think it said there was more than one boat, so.
0: Oh, okay. All right, that's still like a...
1: A lot of grain. Yeah. Incidentally, J.K.V. specifies that Nicholas is personally in charge of grain distribution, which I thought was interesting.
0: Indeed. There's a parallel there between St. Nick and Joseph in the Old Testament, because Joseph was basically sold to, well, this part's not similar, but sold by his brothers.
1: Oh, this is Joseph of the Technicolor Dreamcoat.
0: Yes, correct. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and ends up like being the top man in the pharaoh's household. And pharaoh's like, hey, I'm gonna let you take care of everything. There's a massive famine in Egypt. But the Lord sends dreams to Joseph like warning him about it. Well, not to him, but to other advisors. Anyway, point is, he's prepared for this. So when his brothers and father come to Egypt to get grain to like get through the famine, they reunite and everyone's like, whoa, it's Joseph, God's chosen one. Anyway, point is, there's a similarity here that I wonder, like how much of this is made up simply because again, we have the parallel of someone who is basically the king's right hand man dispersing grain. That is particularly what Joseph was in charge of Yes, during a famine.
1: I was thinking it might also be uh, like a loaves and fishes thing, because maybe the reason it specifies he's in charge of distribution is meant to explain why it lasts so long.
0: That makes sense, yeah. Especially if it's like two years worth of frickin' grain. It does
1: specify that it's not just two years worth of eating, but also enough to sow for the next years.
0: Wow, okay. Impressive.
1: When the ships get to Alexandria, their cargo is weighed and measured, and nothing is found missing. Whoa. It's a miracle.
0: You know, sure it is.
1: Yes, so this is Nicholas's miracle of cooking the books.
0: (laughs) Fair enough, I guess.
1: All right, we have another anecdote, and this is one that we all knew was coming, because no religious story is complete without a little forced conversion. Always. Yeah, this is my least favorite Nicholas story. All the other ones are kind of cool, but in this one, he's a
0: Any kind of forced conversion story is just rough. Yeah. It's terrible. There's no, there's no bones about it.
1: Oh, and I also have noted here, this is the primary way in which the medieval church is like the Borg. Good to note. To quote, and in this country, the people served idols. Myra, by the way, is on the coastline of Anatolia, modern day Turkey, which until the early 20th century was part of Greece. Like, in, in that, like, area of right up right up against. Yeah. That may be an oversimplification. I'm not up on my Ottoman geopolitics, but
0: yeah. Uh, yeah, well, who is these days? Anyway,
1: to quote, In this country, the people served idols and worshipped the false image of the cursed Diana.
0: I've never heard her described that way.
1: Well, I have a marginal note here that says, Gods forbid women do anything. But <laughs> to elaborate on that, I think the reason that the Church particularly doesn't like her, or at least that j k v doesn't like her' is mm-hmm. because she is a pagan b a woman, and c heavily queer coded, so like that's true. you don't want anyone in your heteronormative patriarchal society worshiping that no, no, never very cursed. anyway, continuing with the quote and to the time of this holy man, Nicholas, many of them had some customs of the paynims. Which, as we mentioned in the King Constant episode, just means non-Christians. In later years, it comes to mean mostly Muslims. But this is it in its broader use, because this is pre-Mohammed. For to sacrifice to Diana under a sacred tree. But this good man made them of all the country to cease then these customs, and commanded to cut off the tree. I see. So Nicholas is like, stop sacrificing, and he cuts down the sacred tree.
0: That seems like a good way to get a curse. Yes. See, my my question here is, does Nicholas believe that Diana's just some kind of made up spirit? Does he believe that Diana is like a demon who like presents as a god? Like, I always wonder about this because from a medieval Christian perspective, you have to fundamentally be a supernaturalist. So what did you think was going to happen? Even if Diana, this so-called Diana, is actually a demon, whatever, did he not think that maybe cutting down the sacred tree would, like, let loose a demon or anger the spirit? Or, I just always wonder about that. Like, why weren't these Christian leaders a little bit more delicate about this, even in considering not just the anger of, you know, the Panims around, but also considering the supernatural forces they are, quote-unquote, fighting?
1: Interestingly, you are thinking along exactly the correct lines for where this story goes.
0: Oh, good! I get answers to my questions this time.
1: I was not. The next thing I wrote down, again, like as a marginal note, is, I bet a lot of people are missing the Diocletian persecutions of a couple decades ago right now. (laughs) Rip. Yeah. But one person is particularly upset. Do you want to guess who?
0: Diana. Or like the head priest of Diana? Or priestess?
1: The devil!
0: Oh, yeah, of course, the devil.
1: But as as we're about to find out, same, same. Of course. So the devil whips up some Greek fire. It doesn't say Greek fire, but it says, quote, He made an oil that burned against nature in water and burned stones also. Which sounds like Greek fire. Which is
0: Greek fire. Which we still don't actually know what that is. Is that correct?
1: I th- mm, Good question. I don't know if we've had any... I-, I remember hearing that we didn't know what it was, but that may be outdated. We are in the right I area. We still
0: for Still, didn't though. really know
1: because, like, that is—I mean, obviously, we're we're not just in the Greek area, but that was a, a Byzantine thing, and we're actually not that far from Constantinople. Yeah, like it's it's up the coast a ways. I keep having to move the little window with you out of the way to read Wikipedia. <laughs> <laughs> it looks like if someone's figured it out, it's not on Wikipedia.
0: Okay. Yeah. Because I think that's still going to be a mystery for a good long while. Because we still don't actually know what was in Roman concrete.
1: Oh, we figured that out. Oh, we did. Yeah, apparently we were making a, an error based on our not understanding of the context in which this was working. The recipes we had said add water. Oh, they no. They did not specify add salt water, which is was of course what would be water? available. Mm. Apparently adding salt water makes it work. But we were adding fresh water because we read add water and we think pure water.
0: Right, but of course that's... Yeah, they were just taking some out of the ocean.
1: Interesting. I don't have a citation for that, but I'll try and... uh, Hey, editing me. Look up a citation so Zoe can put it on the blog. Future Mac here. This is actually something of an oversimplification. I checked into it a little more, and it's more like when Roman concrete is immersed in seawater, it undergoes a chemical process that normal concrete doesn't. And that process is what makes it so durable. I found a couple articles on it, most of which are beyond me because I'm not a chemist or a mineralogist, as the case may be. But I'm going to give a citation for one of the more detailed studies that was released open access and also a more accessible summary of the topic from 2017 to Zoe so she can put it in the blog and you can check it out for yourself so that if you do understand this stuff better than I do, which is a low bar, you will be able to satisfy your curiosity. Okay, so the devil has made some Greek fire. That's right. He then dresses up like a nun, gets on a boat. Zoe is making faces.
0: This is some Loki type right here. <laughs> this is like that story where Thor dresses up like a woman. It is.
1: Well, you know, I, I guess, like, if you're the devil and you want to figure out a way to look very non-threatening, none.
0: Pick a nun. I get that.
1: I I assume there's some shape-changing involved, and this isn't, like, a big red horned creature with a habit <laughs> on top.
0: Yeah, where did we get that idea of the devil, anyway?
1: I think it's based on Pan.
0: Mm, mm-hmm. That makes sense.
1: Anyway, so he's, he gets on a boat as as a nun and finds some pilgrims who are on another boat and they're on their way to Myra. He explains that he dearly wants to visit Bishop Nick, but can't, so won't these pilgrims be a dear? And when they go through Myra, use this here oil to anoint the walls of Nicholas's church.
0: Okay, so he's saying that this Greek fire, and I'm not saying this is actual Greek fire, but it's the mystical Greek fire of the devil, is an oil that, like, hasn't been lit yet?
1: Yes, it is an oil that apparently... From what I understand, it does not need to be lit. It just combusts after being exposed to air for a certain amount of time.
0: Oh, so it's like an airtight jar and then... Interesting.
1: Or, actually, and this also fits the text. Actually, I think it would make more sense. It might be like magnesium and catch fire when it touches water.
0: I like that. That's cool.
1: That is, that is magnesium, right? Because if that is the case, then the scheme is... Have them smear the oil on the walls of the church... They'll think it's fine. They'll walk away. And then the next time it rains, the whole place burns down.
0: That's wild. I love that. Instant, instant D&D thing right there.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, that's that's his plan. He's like setting these pilgrims up to commit arson.
0: That's a really good plan. I'm not going to lie.
1: It's a good plan.
0: It's a really good plan.
1: You got to give it to the devil. You really do. <laughs> The pilgrims later find another ship, which has a passenger who looks exactly like Bishop Nick.
0: What? I
1: know. Who would have guessed it? This passenger asks about the oil and who gave it to them, and they tell him, and he's like, that was, quote, the evil and foul Diana. So apparently Diana, devil, same difference.
0: Sure. Maybe that's why it was a nun rather than like a monk.
1: That would make sense. If this is getting, like, transmuted over time, it might be that originally it had Diana doing this. Mm-hmm. And then they're like, mm-hmm. well, obviously that's the devil.
0: Yeah, obviously, of course.
1: And so they just swapped that out in the earlier part. I like it. And that's why he's that's why we have the traditionally male devil wearing a female costume, is because of, originally this Diana. was Diana.
0: Yeah, That'll that make makes sense, sense to me,
1: yeah. So Nick tells them to throw the oil overboard, which they do. And it burns on the water, which is why I was saying that, like, maybe it catches fire when it, when it hits water.
0: Okay, that makes- I was gonna say, like, that seems like a really bad idea. The ship's gonna combust.
1: I guess they throw it far enough.
0: Well, I'd make them roll for it, but. <laughs>
1: <laughs> anyway, it, it burns on the water, which they all agree is pretty f***ed up. I don't have the text in front of me, but it does describe them, like, staring at it and going, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> whoa. Anyway, so that's the end of that story.
0: I'm kind of surprised. I would almost take that, like, if it wasn't for Nicholas saying, like, that's the evil ones thing. Like, if they accidentally dropped it in the water and it was all, like, fire and flames. The problem with happenings like this is that it's very difficult to tell whether this is the work of God or the work of the devil. That's true. Which is always, again, this is a theme that interests me. So I think you could play with this in a campaign to maybe have something happen by one of the gods' hands, but you don't necessarily know which god, and so then maybe you have to puzzle it out.
1: Honestly, I think this whole, like, story could be fully adapted into an adventure. Mm-hmm. Although, and I think the tabletop RPG slash modern storytelling version, Nicholas would not be, like, unambiguously the good guy. It no, would be more morally no. gray, and he might 100%. actually be straight up the villain.
0: Yeah, yeah. Because
1: he did cut down a sacred tree, so, you know, f*** him.
0: It really depends on what perspective your players take. And I think I've talked about this before, but one of my favorite things to do is have players from different backgrounds only know certain things mm-hmm. about different cultures or races, wherever they're from in their backstory. And then that way you have inner party conflict of like, no, like, I worship the tree lady. And then someone else being like, what the f-? the tree lady's terrible. And then you have to deal with that.
1: I honestly think in order to make it ambiguous, like, mo- in order to make any of this, like, morally ambiguous so that people could take either side, you'd have to actively make Diana, like, an evil goddess. Because in order for anyone mm-hmm. to take the side of the guy who cut down the sacred tree, you're going to have to make it clear that it's sacred to someone who is not good.
0: Not good, yeah, yeah.
1: If they're even just, like, a neutral deity, they're going to go, like, well, it was a sacred tree and it's a d- move to cut it down. Yeah. If it's a deity that's more on the evil side, then I think there'll be a, then there'll be a split with people saying like look it's just wrong to cut down sacred trees and stuff and other people going like well well <laughs> maybe not this tree. Yeah.
0: I feel like there's other ways you could play it like maybe there's something like the tree is affecting this other sacred thing. You could play it so that there is no bad guy, so to speak. There's just conflicting issues where it really depends on your perspective like well will the trees cutting into like it's shading the sacred sunlight from the sun god in the temple next door and it's like now we can't do our sun ritual and it's like cut down the tree at least trim it and then they're like no how dare you this is our sacred tree and or whatever you know there's ways to play it
1: anyway you you would have to work with it in order to make it Sufficiently morally complex.
0: Massage it a little
1: bit. like, reading it as is, I'm 100% on Diana's side, and I think that's going to be most people.
0: Yeah! Why the hell would you cut down the sacred tree?
1: And I feel like if Zoe agrees with me on this, that demonstrates that even devout Christians are taking the pagan side in this story. For real! (laughs) uh, Clearly, this is not a story that makes Nicholas look good. No! (laughs) Alright, anyway. New story. There's a rebellion against the Emperor. And three, quote, princes, unquote, are sent to put it down. Their names are Nepotian, Ursin, and Apollin. Those are cool names. I have no idea if these names are significant or if they're just made up because trying to look them up just gets me this story. Of course. They're good names, though.
0: Like Nepotian?
1: Yeah, let me spell them out. Nepotian is N-E-P-O-T-I-A-N. Ursin is U-R-S-Y-N.
0: Ooh, I did not expect the Y. That is
1: cool. Yeah, not like bears. Yeah, yeah. And Apollon, it's Apollo, but instead of an O at the end, it's another Y-N.
0: Y-N, and Apollon. Nice. All right. Those are great names.
1: Yeah, they're. That, again, like I was sure meant something, but I could not find them. I, I tried looking them up in the Purdue Libraries database, I tried Googling them, and all I got There's was this just. There's just
0: nothing. Interesting. It's always curious. I feel like we lose a lot of names over time. Mm hmm. Because the only the most popular ones really come through are the ones that get written down. And then we have stories like this where they do get written down and we still have no idea.
1: Yeah, I was kind of curious as to whether these were actual, like, governors under Constantine or something. Because, like, this is set in a very concrete historical period. period. Mm-hmm. We know it's shortly after the Council of Nicaea.
0: I'm mostly more curious to know whether these were common names or not.
1: Yeah, that is a good question.
0: You know, like... There's a lot of Johns nowadays, or like Jesus's name technically was a fairly common name. Still is. Who knows? Yeah, true.
1: Although it's spelled differently depending on where you are, but, you know, you'll find a lot of Joshua's around here and a lot of Jesus's Mm -hmm. down south. Yeah, same name. So, princes, or whatever. Officials. They have these names. A rough wind forces the princes to put ashore in a port near Myra, and Nicholas invites them to come dine with him. And it specifies that this is in hopes that he can prevent the typical problems that come with military types passing through your city.
0: (laughs) I don't know what I expected.
1: I mean, entirely sensible.
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely.
1: If you have, like, Roman military commanders landing in your city, like, your first thought is going to be like, how do I stop them from just pillaging? Yes. Because, like, they're absolutely going to do that if you don't distract them. Mm -hmm. During dinner, Nicholas suddenly learns that the consul... This is spelled like the head of the Roman Republic, but I looked it up, and in this context, it probably just means a kind of municipal leader. Like, apparently that title became more widespread and more flexible.
0: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: The local consul has just ordered three innocent knights to be beheaded.
0: Wait, in his area?
1: Yes, in Myra.
0: Innocent knights to be beheaded in your area. (laughs) (laughs) Click here.
1: (laughs) Sorry, that was just
0: there. I had to go with it.
1: Fair. There.
0: Okay, that makes sense. I Sometimes I forget that at this time, who has what kind of authority to do what is murky. Mm-hmm. So bishops had some like governmental in quotes authority, but they also didn't have all of the authority. And there's a lot of different jurisdictions, yeah. things cross over because there's ecclesiastical law, blah, blah, blah. Okay. That makes sense. I was because
1: I was really confused. Yeah, there is also a secular authority who I yes. think outranks Nicholas. It's kind we're kind of given Definitely. that vibe. Yeah. So Nicholas, who in this story has switched right back to making decisions I can respect, <laughs> decides it's time for some direct action. I have noted here that I should stop and ask you. What do you think Nicholas will do here?
0: I think he's going to send the Roman soldiers, like he's going to sit them down to dinner and he's going to just like sweet talk a little bit and be like, Oh, there's, you know, there's a terrible thing happening in town. I can't really do anything about it. Oh, dear. I wish some strong, handsome Roman bad boys would take care of this problem for me. That's where I think he's going with it.
1: (laughs) Honestly, that's pretty good. (laughs) But here's what he actually does.
0: Ah, rats. Rats.
1: So he tells the princes to follow him, oh, and goes straight to the location of the execution. One assumes this is like a known place where executions happen. Yes. he arrives just in time at which point he physically fights the executioner.
0: bruh, see, I should have expected this. like the second you said follow me, I was like, oh, I should have expected violence from the guy who slapped at b- the council of Nicaea. Yes, but oh,
1: d- yes. <laughs> So he actually fights the executioner, takes the head chopping sword out of his hand and throws it aside. Amazing. He unties the knights and they join the group as he marches straight to the consul's house where he, quote, found the gates closed, which anon he opened by force, which I'm interpreting to mean he kicked them down because that just seems to fit the vibe.
0: It does, yeah. Either that
1: or I imagine, like, Super Jack Santa Claus
0: ripping him open with his bare hands.
1: (laughs) That's right! We keep forgetting to make him Santa Claus. Um, there are reindeer in the background. (laughs) That'll work. (laughs) So, inside the consul's house, the consul tries to turn this around and, like, receive the bishop politely. But Big Nick is having none of this. Yeah, I wouldn't either. He responds to the consul's, like, polite formal greeting as follows, and I quote... Oh, Lord, here we go. Thou enemy of God, corrupter of the law, wherefore hast thou consented to so great evil and felony? How darest thou look on us? Great lines. (laughs) Yes.
0: I want more D&D bishops and cleric type leaders to be able to do this.
1: I mean, honestly, I feel like if Nicholas were someone's D&D character, this is exactly how he'd handle the situation.
0: Oh, 100%. But I also want to point out here, I feel like we are sleeping as a D&D and d community, or as a TTRPG community, on the fact that historically, religious leaders are, well, one, they're very charismatic, generally speaking, but also, like, they could do a lot, and they could be bad ass, and they could be angry, like, Jesus went into the temple with a freaking whip, like, and he's flipping tables. So just saying, I think that we can have paladins and and other folks who can do that. Yeah.
1: I feel like the pacifist ideal we try and place on a lot of our religious, like, characters is all well and good, but we should remember that Mm -hmm. historically, most of these people, not pacifists.
0: No, very much not. No. Like, Just to put this in stark reality for all of our listeners, Augustine, in his, like, massive work, The City of God, establishes the parameters for what makes a holy war. Like, when are you allowed, as an individual and as a political leader, allowed to go to war? He establishes that Mm -hmm. for Christendom.
1: And I'm sure they make heavy use of that during their many crusades.
0: They absolutely did. And they based it on Augustine. So just want to point that out. Like, eh, it it drives me crazy. Because like, well, well, the church fathers wouldn't actually agree with that. Um, Father Augustine did. He kind of he kind of set the precedent for having a holy war. Like we're not, you know, Islam is not the only one with the idea of a jihad here, people.
1: Yeah, no, not at all.
0: Just putting that out there.
1: I I think in in Islam, the jihad is often more discussed as an internal spiritual struggle than an external war.
0: Yeah, well, it ought to be. And there's there's both, Christendom and, uh, well, not Christendom, but Christianity and Islam both have internal spiritual warfare and justifications for physical holy warfare. I'm not going to speak to whether that is right or wrong. I'll let you make your own conclusions on that. We're not going to try and both
1: sides the Crusades here, but we're just saying that, like, no. <laughs> Religious communities in general have like violence as an option. Or at least Western yes. ones. I feel yes. like, you know, maybe the Jainists don't. I don't know what their deal is.
0: I feel like everybody's gonna come up with a way to justify violence and through religion of some kind. It's human nature, but
1: This is one of the things that I think Five E actually did better than previous editions, is that they introduced other types of paladin like you could have like a, i don't remember the terms but there's like paladins yeah. of vengeance and whatnot and i think that's that's yeah. a place for yeah. this archetype
0: oh 100 i feel like the stereotype of like oh lawful good paladin because that very often turns into mm-hmm. like lawful stupid and that's just not not fun to have to be at a table and play with that like- one
1: one of my standard house rules when i when i ran third edition and pathfinder is Paladins do not have to be lawful good. Every god has paladins. They just have to be the same alignment as their god.
0: Yes. Well, precisely. Exactly. Like, that's the big thing, is that for the purpose of D&D, you have an internal D&D universe with an objective morality there. But every character believes that they are the good guy. So, like, play that up. Like, just because your paladin thinks they're lawful good does not mean that they are lawful good in the scope of the game. So understand that and start playing with that because and again, if you're going to place a character who's religious, start thinking about what other ways you can play that out. Where are they going to struggle? Like, do they want to live frugally, live uh, without any means? And then when they become an adventurer, they're like, oh, I'm doing this in the service of my God with anything that's on my back. Okay, cool. Here's your reward. How do they deal with that? What do they do with it? For instance, or like, hey, I have a vengeance quest and I truly deeply believe that goblins are terrible scourge of the earth and need to be eradicated because they are evil. Okay, consider playing with that as a moral quandary for your
1: character. I'd like to in- to note that as another thing that recent editions do better is that goblins are not always mm-hmm. evil. I mean, I don't know anyone who ever played that they were in past editions, but now it's canonical. Right.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that that comes from largely the tradition of Tolkien having like orcs. Orcs are just evil. They are corrupted versions of elves. Like in the Silmarillion, in his world building, that's just what they are. They are beings of evil. They cannot be reformed. Blah 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 blah. So you have a Tolkien bad guy or a Tolkien bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm hilarious. Anyway, who <laughs> who you can very easily like just. Eradicate and have a holy war, and in the Lord of the Rings, it very much is a holy war. But we've progressed beyond that in Dungeons and Dragons and in a lot of fantasy media nowadays. Not holy, but in media f- nowadays, that we can play with those ideas.
1: I, I think that most non D and D fantasy RPGs have just fully ditched that the whole concept of the always oh, yeah. evil. It's only D&D that's, like, slowly, gradually moving away from it. Everyone else Mm -hmm. in the genre Mm -hmm. was, like, done with it a while ago.
0: Oh, for sure. And I will say, like, there is a lot of benefit you can gain from having just a pure bad guy. Like, it is nice to be able to be like, oh, yes, a Hydra that is just a beast attacking shit. We need to go kill it. You don't have to bog your players down in, is this a moral action? Like,
1: so balance it out. I mean, I'm going to say killing something with animal intelligence is morally ambiguous because it doesn't know that it's doing anything <laughs> wrong. And hey, maybe it's an important part of the ecosystem and you just need to relocate it. Yeah. Or
0: something. yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So I guess all in all, point here being, yes, engage with moral quandaries. And when you're playing a character, be aware that not everything is just good, evil, black, white. But also there is something to be said for like... Having a good dungeon crawl and beating up the bad guys. So, don't get so bogged down in stuff that you're like, oh, well, are you sure this is a good idea? Can we morally like be okay with blah blah blah? Like, are the slavers really bad people?
1: Like, I mean, they're definitely guys, bad
0: people. <laughs> like, there's there's a line, so you know,
1: <laughs>
0: don't get too bogged down in it. But it is some, it is fun to play with those
1: those quandaries. All right, we've gotten off track. Back on topic. Yes, yes. Nicholas has just kicked down the consul's gate and burst in with his retinue of three Roman princes and three recently rescued knights, shouted at the consul. Amazing. Yes, that's right. And this apparently works because the consul repents. And then the princes have to talk Nicholas down. He's out for blood. What it says is they convince Nicholas to quote, receive his penance, unquote, which I think means assigning him some way to atone rather than just going back for that sword and finishing this here.
0: I like to picture it that way. Okay, so maybe he doesn't beat up a guy at the Council of Nicaea, but I do like to picture Santa Claus with a freaking sword.
1: Canonically, he did beat breaking up him down a guy. some walls. It was just an executioner, not another bishop. Nice. Thus, Nicholas performs the miracle of standing up to state-sanctioned violence without subsequently mysteriously <laughs> dying in the back of a cop car. Oh my gosh. Apparently I was in a mood when I wrote this.
0: Yeah, apparently. <laughs> I think that we could achieve a lot of progress if the Pope and local bishops decided to go knocking on governmental leaders' doors.
1: apparently that's actually happened mostly in Latin America with some religious figures, it's called i want to say the phrase is liberation theology, but apparently in large parts of Latin america uh, religious institutions have been locuses of resist locuses loci locus centers of resistance in in the past
0: all right, I just think that it would be very interesting if like The Bishop of, I don't know, Ohio? Do they have a bishopric?
1: Let's find out. I bet they do.
0: (laughs) It's not super relevant, but I just think it would be interesting if, like, the Bishop of Ohio or Texas would be like, hey, I think we should have a little bit of reform here. And also, you know, maybe if you don't, I'll come knocking.
1: Incidentally, the Anglicans have a Bishop of Ohio. The Catholics apparently have multiple bishoprics inside Ohio. Oh, because I googled this, and apparently there is an Archbishop of Cincinnati.
0: Good to know.
1: And a Bishop of Columbus. There and nowadays. a Bishop of Cleveland. I'm putting this away.
0: <laughs> I feel like there's a lot less uh, stature to be had if you're a bishop nowadays.
1: I'm sure that it's still, like, just as much pomp and circumstance and respect and all. It just The phrase Archbishop of Cincinnati just sounds kind of funny.
0: It does. It really does.
1: I, I think it's because it's that collision of, like... Old world and new world just mm-hmm. kind of sparks something weird in our brain. We're like, what? That can't be oh, right. Yeah.
0: That's not. That's not our real thing. Yeah. Okay, so we've successfully stopped Nick from destroying the the consul.
1: Yeah, Nicholas frees these three innocent knights. He threatens the consul. The princes talk him down. And now we're going to fast forward a bit, but this is still the same story. Okay. The three princes successfully put down the rebellion. Quote, without shedding of blood, unquote. So that's nice. Very good. They go back to the emperor's court where they are rewarded and generally celebrated. Huzzah. This makes other people jealous. So through palace intrigue, they end up falsely accused of treason and sentenced to death.
0: Isn't that what we were trying to stop in the first place?
1: Well, these are the princes, not the knights. So it's different people. Ugh, okay. But the night before their execution, while they're in prison, Nepotian is like, Hey, Wouldn't it be great if that kick-ass bishop from Myra were here? So they pray to him, and he appears.
0: Hell yes.
1: Presumably after being caught up on events, he then appears in the dreams of Emperor Constantine. Himself? Yes, this is the first time that the emperor is given a name, which made me feel silly for, like, working it out
0: earlier. I appreciate that you did that, though. You had no guarantee.
1: I do like that it's also, this is the right emperor. Like, yeah. In between the Council of Nicaea and the death of Saint Nicholas, Emperor Constantine was the emperor for pretty much that entire time. Nice. So this is accurate. which
0: is this is a rare occurrence for the Golden Legend.
1: I don't know for the Golden Legend, but the Gesta Romanorum would definitely yeah. have said the wrong guy. Yeah, we we haven't done enough Golden Legend, honestly.
0: That's fair. I associate all these folk tales with just having a certain emperor,
1: right? <laughs> which until now it did, but now now it's definitely Constantine. All right. Now, Constantine is known for being kind of ruthless and murdery. Yeah. Like, he did execute a couple members of his own family and also waged a war of conquest against people he was technically already in charge of because he didn't like sharing power. Yeah. So we're not talking about a real nice guy here. Nah. I mean, since he also uh, made the Empire Christian, most historians in Europe have since made a point of talking nice about him, but... Even still, like, he's not someone you want to antagonize. No, no. Anyway, so naturally, Nicholas is super careful and polite when he delivers the following line. Wherefore hast thou taken these three princes with so great wrong, and hast judged them to death without trespass? Arise up hastily, and command that they not be executed, or I shall pray to God that he move battle against thee, in which thou shalt be overthrown, and shalt be made meat to beasts." He does not miss with these threats. No, he's serious. Now, I'm shortening this, but this is literally the meaning of the quote. Constantine says, who dares? Yeah. (laughs) And Nick is like, Nicholas of Myra f***ing dares. Come at me.
0: Yeah, yeah,
1: bruh. (laughs) Nicholas, likewise, appears in the dreams of the provost. Oh, I see. I had to look this up because in my head, a provost is a member of university administration. But apparently it's a title with a lot of different uses, and in this case we're probably meant to think warden.
0: Ah, yes. Or
1: possibly sheriff.
0: Oh, okay. Okay.
1: Yeah. We then find out that he actually was being polite to Constantine. Oh, no. Who is, after all, also a saint in some traditions? so maybe there's some, like, professional respect there.
0: I wouldn't call any of that respect, but sure. Well,
1: because this is the speech he gives to the provost.
0: Oh, boy. Here we go.
1: Thou that hast lost mind and wit, wherefore hast thou consented to the death of innocence? Go forth anon and do thy part to deter them, or else thy body shall rot and be eaten with worms, and thy mani shall be destroyed. That, that's pretty rough. Yes. I have another note here that I should stop and ask. Nicholas just said that the provost's mani shall be destroyed. What do you think a mani is off the top of your head? Can you spell it for me? M e i n y,
0: like Chow mein. Yeah, like I don't actually know what that means.
1: I did not expect you to. I was I was just hoping to see if you had, if you'd have a fun guess. Like his guts. See, that's where I would have gone. Right. Actually, I noticed its similarity to the word hiney and thought it was like something dirty. <laughs> but I, I looked it up in the OED and household. It's cognate with mansion. Oh. Uh-huh. So he basically said, like, not only will you die, your whole family and probably servants also. Yeah,
0: your household, your like the entire thing.
1: Yes. Oof. So the provost goes running to Constantine and tells him how Nicholas of Myra is after his mania. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. And
1: the two compare notes. <laughs> oh, oh no. Then they had to see the imprisoned princes where they immediately... Zoe, what do you think they do? Set them free? Accuse them of witchcraft.
0: Oh no, oh no. I mean, that is the other option.
1: <laughs> Luckily, the prisoners are just like, but we're not witches. And that's, that's good enough.
0: Whatever does I, it. I
1: feel like a lot of this gets shortened. Yeah. Because like, this is just like the thing with the sailors where they're like, but we can't. And Nicholas is like, it's fine. And they're like, okay. And like, there's clearly there was more of a conversation. Yeah, there had to be. I, I would hope so. Constantine then asked them if they know anyone named Nicholas of Myra. Because remember, he asked who, who dares and got the name. Yes. Who dares? And he, he also gave his name to the provost. So that's, and when they compared notes, they both were like, oh, Nicholas of Myra. That's the same guy. Ah, got it. Yes. And they tell him the story from earlier about how he saved the knights and kicked in the consul's door and stuff. Yes. So Constantine is like, fine, you can all go free. And I want y'all to go to Myra and give Nicholas some thank you gifts out of your own pockets, mind, mm-hmm. and to tell him not to threaten me again. Understandable. So they do. And this is why Nicholas is also the patron saint of prisoners.
0: Seems kind of sketch.
1: Well, if you're Catholic and you're in prison and you want someone to get you out of prison, isn't this the guy you'd pray to? I would go with Paul. Interesting. Why?
0: Well, because Paul was in prison and then he prayed and the doors like literally busted open because oh. like an angel busted them open. And the warden sees this and he freaks out because he thinks like everybody's escaped. He's about to get killed. And Paul's like, no, 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 we're all still here. It's okay. And then the warden's like, whoa. And then they they eventually like get out.
1: What? He stayed there? He didn't just yes. leave when the angel busted it down? Correct. Because
0: mm. he, he, he also saved the warden's life. See, no collateral damage for Paul. I mean. But Nicholas, on the other hand.
1: Uh, Apparently, Paul is the patron of missionaries, theologians, evangelists, and Gentile Christians, whatever that last one is.
0: Gentile Christians, as in not Jewish Christians, not those who have converted from Judaism or ethnically Jewish and Ah, converted to Christianity.
1: Which is a pretty short list compared to Nicholas, but I guess it's also pretty broad since there are like a lot of missionaries and stuff.
0: That's a larger... And Gentile Christians. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Interestingly... The Catholic Encyclopedia says that he's the patron saint of prisoners. Wikipedia says he's the patron saint of the falsely accused. And Hmm. I like the Catholic Encyclopedia's version better because I think that you should still be able to pray to Nicholas even if you definitely did it.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: All right. This is roughly the halfway point. And in (laughs) fact, this is also, coincidentally... This is the last of the miracles Nicholas performs while alive. The other half are things that happened after his death.
0: Oh, good. Okay, I'm interested to see how he gets killed. Because he kind of seems like he deserves it a little bit. Like, he he's done a lot of violent, aggressive things. I feel like the consequences of his actions are going to catch up with him.
1: I don't know. It doesn't say.
0: Oh, come on.
1: It just says he dies in the year 343. However. Lame. What I will say is that. Since Constantine died in the year 337, this means Nikki totally got away with threatening him. And this death is unrelated.
0: Interesting. Good to know. All right, I'll take that one.
1: The cause of death is totally glossed over. The most specific it gets is angels took his soul. Which I assume means he died and they didn't just like steal it. I kind of like
0: the idea that they're like, hey, buddy, your time's up. (sighs) Just snatched it. That's exactly
1: how that works. (laughs) (laughs) Soul snatchers. At this point, we stopped and had a bit of a discussion, and we have decided that we will save St. Nicholas's posthumous miracles for next Christmas. So I'm just going to transition straight into our segments on the life of St. Nicholas. What say you? The first one, of course, is best dialogue. I mean,
0: with Nicholas popping off like he does.
1: Yeah. It's good.
0: I mean, his first one really got me, though. Like, the first time he goes off.
1: Yeah. I think my favorite is when he says, let me, let me flip to it to make sure I get it correct. Because When he finishes his speech to the console with, how darest thou look upon us? hmm Mm-hmm. I think that's the best.
0: Yeah. Yeah. See, but that's also, like, that's probably also my best moment. Maybe not. We'll come back to it. Anyway.
1: Oh, man.
0: What do you want to use for a D and D game? <laughs> I mean, I like the idea of your players just chucking money through people's windows.
1: <laughs>
0: That's a pretty cool idea.
1: I think all of these are good stories to <laughs> stick into like the background. If you're establishing like the careers of various like religious leaders and or saints or whatever, like this is pretty good.
0: Yeah. Oh yeah. I like the Greek fire quest. Mm-hmm. I want that there's so many ways you can play that too like maybe the Greek fire is given to the players and they don't know what it actually is and they're just like oh it's holy oil put this on the church when you get there and then they like do they ever figure this out do they actually like do an act of terrorism
1: Ooh, I mean like I'm gonna assume that they would like be deeply suspicious and play around with it until they accidentally set themselves on fire. But I'd like to watch that happen.
0: I feel like it depends on how you present it. Because if you present it as like a, hey, you can earn your holy symbol by just dropping off this little thing of oil and you just smear it on the church statue or whatever. And if you just play it off as like a mini quest in the scope of a bigger quest, then they're like, oh, okay, whatever. And the next thing you know, shaboom. But- That's where the fun of this comes in, because they could also be like, well, like, no one's going to notice if some of the holy oil disappears, right?
1: Maybe it'll be useful later. (laughs) Yeah,
0: we don't know. (laughs) I think that's fun. I also like the holy tree, that whole problem. Mm -hmm. That one's a good
1: one. I think that Nicholas of Myra, as depicted in the whole, like, execution of knights story, Yes. should be an NPC. That should be a bishop in your city. 100%. Who, like, when you're talking about him, like, oh, yeah, in this one time, he went out and fought the executioner and took away his sword and, like, shouted down the mayor. And bonus points if he's, like, this little old frail guy.
0: Oh, 100%.
1: (laughs) Or you could go the complete other way and go, like, no, this is is Nicholas the Muscle Bishop and have him be, like, played by the rock.
0: I love it. I love it. Both ways are fantastic. And I feel like...
1: That's what I call muscular Christianity.
0: (laughs) Hey... I just like the idea of him, like, straight up breaking down doors and tackling the console. Yes. 10 out of 10. Like, right after- Well, he wrestles the Executioner, which is already cool. Yes. there's, there's. I mean, there's so many
1: ways you can play this. I think it would have been better if he'd taken the Executioner's sword with him, just in case, but it does specify that he throws it aside.
0: I mean, yeah, that's true. But also, you know, you get the symbolism of it all.
1: Yeah. So I guess it's fine. But like, yeah, that's that's an NPC for you.
0: Yeah, one hundred percent. Okay, so anything else? Okay, hear me out here. Mm-hmm. The weird kid who hangs around at the temple.
1: Yes. What about it? I like him.
0: Just.
1: <laughs> he just, just be he's just he's just
0: there. Well, there's a couple ways you could go with it. One, he's just the weird kid who hangs around at the temple. Whatever. But mm. the other way you could play this is depending on how your characters treat him. When he, like, hulks out and becomes the bishop, and they drag him kicking and screaming. We forgot about that one. But, like, when they, when they, I almost said knight him. When they knight him the bishop, when When they make him the bishop, then he remembers the party, and how Mm -hmm. does he treat them? Like, what does that, what does that relationship look like now?
1: Yeah. I was thinking that you could have, like, a weird kid who hangs around the church, and it turns out he's... That, like, the gleefully haunted thing is completely literal, and it's some kind of ghost.
0: Ooh, that would be fun.
1: That one's good. Also, that alludes to another thing that you need to put in your game, which is involuntary bishoping. Yes. you need a new bishop, you just grab someone. Just grab the They're guy. They're the bishop now. Once you force them into the bishop's seat, they are legally the bishop, and they can't do anything about it. That would be wild.
0: Just, like, roll a d4 for me. Suddenly, they all, like, swarm you in adulation and you're like what?
1: I think there should be a whole like religious order in your campaign setting that gets all of their bishops that way.
0: That would be both terrifying and hilarious. Yes. I'm here for it. Horrifying. Okay. How many ages hence shall this our lofty scene be acted over in states unborn and accents- Echoes in modern culture. Santa Claus. Well he's
1: Santa Claus. Yes. <laughs>
0: I mean, we do have the whole, um, like, chucking gifts into the house. Yeah. And the guy staying up to wait for him, but that's
1: about all that I can see. Yeah, there's really not a whole lot of overlap. I feel like the Santa Claus thing is based on that specific legend. Although, in, like, poking around and reading the entry in the Catholic Encyclopedia... He does have a number of other miracles that are, like, helping children, mm. so that might also be part of it. But I have that, those heard aren't that
0: about him. I have heard that.
1: He doesn't do that in The Golden Legend.
0: I just like the idea that Santa Claus supports sex work.
1: That's true. That would be nice. I hope it's official and I just couldn't find it.
0: That would be pretty fun.
1: I've also heard him referred to as the patron saint of thieves, but that's not in oh. the Catholic Encyclopedia either.
0: Hmm. Interesting.
1: Although that might be a subcategory of prisoners.
0: Yeah. Technically. All
1: right.
0: Do we have enough people? I mean, we've got like, what, the three princes?
1: Yeah. I plus- mean, I I feel like the way we go, there are two ways we could go, which is we either skip this or we just say, you know what? Nicholas and whoever happens to be standing near him. Yeah, are the whole for party. real. That's what yeah. we need.
0: He just bonus inspiration. Let's go. We're all in this together. Yeah. hmm. Okay dungeon master's dictionary terminology to steal i like the three names that we got yes the those names were are really cool
1: which which for the listeners i will find and repeat them
0: while he's looking for those miney as household is a cool yes. word i don't know how you would use that it's kind of a horrible word it's like <laughs> it's, it's like moist you know how people don't like that word
1: the names are nepotheon urson and apollon
0: boom Street smarts! What can we learn? I feel like there's a lot to learn here.
1: Direct action works.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yes, this is true.
1: If you have the position and social cachet to get away with it, you should absolutely threaten your local authorities whenever they do something wrong. And if you can, show up in their dreams as well.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, like, if your local bishop is on a rampage and they're making it happen take note, like, maybe stick by them. It's kind of impressive how much he actually gets done. Santa Claus actually has nothing to do with whether you're naughty or nice. That's true. Like, it's not, it doesn't, it's not involved at all. That's, that's the pagan gods.
1: Well, yeah, I guess the neighbor he helps is probably not nice.
0: I mean, we don't actually know. Like, on the one hand, he's like, Oh, thank you, my daughters, for like willingly volunteering to go be sex workers. And on the other hand, it's like, hey, you're going to go be prostitutes
1: now. I mean, I guess either one would be like not smiled upon by the church. I don't think either one is good. I mean, it would be nice if they did it voluntarily and were like feeling empowered about it. But yes, I guess they're forced into it by poverty. So, you know, there's there's an element of coercion either way.
0: That and also he's not doing anything.
1: That's true. They would be supporting him and he would not be doing anything.
0: So I don't think Count's as nice. He's not on St. Nicholas's nice list.
1: Yeah, and he, he seems to help the sailors without asking, like, whether they're good people. Mm -hmm. He helps everyone in Myra with the whole grain thing. Yeah, true. He does only seem to rescue prisoners who are both A, innocent, and B, rich, which I think is not the way to go.
0: Yeah, that's a problem.
1: But yeah, in general, it does not seem that Santa Claus cares about whether you're naughty or nice. Yeah. Well, glad we
0: solved that.
1: Don't cut down sacred trees.
0: Yeah, what's with that? just not a good plan. I feel like a lot of people do that in these stories. In the Gesta Romanorum and in the Golan legend, there's always like some priest who's like, I'm gonna destroy this thing. And then it like causes trouble. And because it's a Christian story, it always ends up positively for, you know, the Christians, but also like it caused a lot of trouble. I don't know. I just take issue with it.
1: If you want to be bishop, just pretend to be the voice of God. Shout down a chimney. Shout down a chimney. Apparently it works.
0: Apparently it's a good system of governance for local religious
1: groups as well. Yes. Just choose your leader at random. Strange women lying in ponds distributing swords. I feel <laughs> like this is the, like, Episcopal equivalent of that.
0: There we go. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Strange women and voices down chimneys. It'll work every time.
1: It'll totally work out if you need someone to be in charge and you just grab the first person to show up. That works. That's a good plan. You should do it.
0: Well, to be fair, the people who come early are like, are, are type A. They're kind of neurotic about it. So they've already got a plan to come early. So you know they're going to be organized.
1: Now, see, I was assuming that it's much more reasonable for, like, the first person to show up to be, again, Mittens the cat who's just there to hunt mice. And yeah. Before everyone gets here is the best time.
0: That's fair. See, my, my mother got us anywhere we needed to be very early. So I would show up for events extraordinarily early, much to my own chagrin. Yeah, it's not great. I mean, it wasn't one of my favorite things, but I am on time routinely now as a result. Yes. Which is nice. There you go. Anyway. Okay. Shall we move on to the best moment? We
1: shall. Best moment. I think the best moment is when he physically fights the executioner, because that kind of shows us like that is a sudden, like jarring swerve that Mm -hmm. absolutely shows us where the rest of the story is going.
0: Yes, 100%. Before this, it was just like, oh, yeah, you know, Nick, right on, Bishop Nick. Cool. Nice guy. Cool guy. Weird how he became Bishop, though. And then this is just like, oh, oh, he's actually crazy.
1: But he's crazy for a good cause.
0: We do admire that. All right. The
1: court. You get to go first.
0: I pick St. Nick. (laughs) Of course you do. Why wouldn't you?
1: (laughs) I'm sorry. I knew you were going to, so I already, like, thought about it, and as a backup, I will pick Emperor Constantine. He's also a good pick. To be fair, he's also exceptional, but he's- I don't like him as much as I like Nicholas.
0: Nick is cool. Oh gosh, I mean, all of this is fun. I feel like most of where it slogs was actually our diversions, and you had to slog through the horrible translation.
1: To be fair, like, it wasn't bad, it was just old.
0: And it's only 15 pages, we only got through half because we go slowly. Yeah. I give it a solid 8. It's not exceptional, but it's surprising, it's fun, it's short, it's unexpected.
1: I will actually match you on that. I was also thinking eight, even though it, it's again, it's it's short and I, I think it could use more like I feel like the fact that it's just a list of anecdotes is not as good as if it were a fully cohesive story. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Also, I'm generally not a huge fan of saints lives and religious literature, but that is made up for by the fact that. Nicholas threatens an emperor and fights an executioner yes. and possibly kicks down a door. the mayor's gates.
0: Yeah. It's which I think engaging. is great. Very engaging. All righty. Huh, a messenger.
1: So normally we would do our leech's corner, but we wanted to do
0: correspondence. what's
1: technically correspondence.
0: Yeah. So today we thought we would go through a couple of the wonderful reviews that have been posted on like Apple Podcasts and all of that just to say thank you
1: yeah cuz we did this once a while ago and then we like forgot about it so
0: yeah and it does make a difference it helps us get up there in the ratings but it's also awesome to just see the feedback and understand what people like about it and yeah it's just it's fun to see so We'll go through those.
1: By the way, if you're listening, please do leave us a rating. Like, I mean, hopefully a good one, but like...
0: Be honest. We do we do get tangential, you know. We understand. We, we go off on weird rants.
1: You don't even have to write a review. Just do a rating. Yeah. Reviews are nice. We'll probably remember to read more of them at another point. We
0: definitely will. All right. All right. Should we just start from the top, even though I think we've read those before?
1: I know we definitely read the first three.
0: Yeah. All right. So we'll just go from the next one. All right. Which is by Fire Garnet on Apple Podcasts. A fun mix of medieval history, myths, tales, chit-chat when one of the other gets distracted and looks up details from text, my favorite parts after the history, and D&D silliness. If you're a GM, this is a gold mine of inspiration. Thank you very much, Fire Garnet, especially for going along with our wonderful tangents. We have fun with them and we're glad you do too.
1: Yes, honestly, I'm glad someone enjoys them because we can't help it.
0: We really can't. For reference, we did this regardless of whether or not we are on the air.
1: Yes, that is true. We
0: did this in class. It was a problem.
1: (laughs) (laughs) By deciding to switch off, I have landed myself with a name that I'm going to have to guess on pronunciation for. I'm going to say that's probably Isida.
0: Isida? That's what I'd go with.
1: We appreciate you. Please tell us how to say your name (laughs) or scold us for saying it wrong. But Isida says, really enjoy how well they incorporate medieval into D&D. Lots of fun to listen to, 10 out of 10 jokes, 5 out of 5 lore.
0: I like that there's two rating systems.
1: Yeah, that's my favorite part of this too, is that jokes are on a 10 out of 10 scale and lore is on a 5 out of 5 scale. Why? Because they're separate things and they have separate systems.
0: I like it. I like it. Yeah. we just stick to the system. All right. Our next one is by That One Ghetto Kid. Such a great podcast. Excellent storytelling from tales that most likely few have heard of unless personally studied. Two great and knowledgeable hosts with a healthy balance of hilarity and educational teaching that keeps listeners entertained through each saga, poem, and folklore tale shared. Yay! This is so sweet. Yeah. I like that we can balance out the the educational stuff, because that is important. We do try and be as accurate as possible to the texts that we cover, we do put in a lot of research into making sure we're getting the most up-to-date stuff. We're getting texts that all of you can read. Even if we do have to go through the like weird, sloggy translations, it's important for us that everyone has access to be able to follow along with these texts. Mm-hmm.
1: I'm also gratified to know that people actually find us funny, because sometimes <laughs> I wonder.
0: I, I do get that. Yeah. I don't generally consider myself a funny person, so I'm glad that we can entertain.
1: The next one by Blue Newt reads, Deeply entertaining. This podcast both makes me want to read more medieval texts and makes me nostalgic for my D&D days. I feel like we can say you should definitely read more medieval texts and play more D&D. Absolutely. Or other tabletop RPGs. Like there are a lot of good ones out there. Mm -hmm. Don't feel the pressure to go with D&D just because it's the most popular.
0: Your D&D days, try try saying that fast, should never be over if you don't want them to be. If you're done with it, I get that. It's kind of an exhausting pastime.
1: It is. It's very time consuming and you have to like gather other people around. Yeah, that's true. It is a toll on your energy.
0: But I will say D&D is more accessible nowadays than I think it has been basically since its conception.
1: It's true. It it at least has a much broader audience. Mm -hmm. Mm
0: -hmm. And there's resources online, super easy to get into and explore.
1: Lately online, I've seen a lot of like people who have been into D&D since the 20th century like complaining <laughs> about all the new folks
0: oh come on and, like, guys don't get you i know D&D. i know and, like,
1: look as as someone who's been playing d for more than 20 years i learned it as a kid i'm i'm, I'm only in my 30s <laughs> in most ways i have become what at least what we used to call a grognard i don't know if that's still the term
0: that's a great term i've never heard that before
1: I remember being told that it's French for old soldier. So I guess it should be Grand Yard or something. But it's what, it's, it's what we used to call people who were like very old fashioned and had been playing D&D a long time and were like very stuck on older editions. For sure.
0: Yeah. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons.
1: Yeah. But speaking as one of those, I love that D&D is getting more engagement. I love all the new things people are doing with it. Mm-hmm. I wish more people would get into it. Oh, yeah. I have no objection to the much broader net it's casting. The only thing I would criticize is that I notice a lot of people on the internet who talk about their D&D characters call them their OCs, and I feel like that's redundant because they're supposed to be original. Yeah. All the Cs are O. You don't need to say it. Yeah, yeah. I
0: think a lot of that comes from a crossover between fandom culture and D&D culture.
1: I would like to think that D&D culture is a healthier option.
0: I would generally agree with that. There's a lot of
1: <laughs> that was that was a very tense yeah. tone of voice.
0: Well, see, this this comes from um, a background of someone who read a lot of fan fiction and has dabbled in fan fiction, and it's a fantastic way to grow your skills. But and there is such a toxic, weird culture around fan fiction because it can be one of the most uplifting and supportive communities. But also, then you get weird catty like tweens and teens who are just so toxic with their stuff and just write Mary Sue after Mary Sue and then some of these people get into D&D and don't understand that this is a cooperative game and their Mary Sue OC can't automatically be a level 20 character who solves all the problems and romances everybody. Like, no, you are not the main character. This is a party. This is a cooperative game. And you have to fundamentally understand that about D&D or else you're going to have a bad time and you're going to make everybody else around you
1: miserable. Fair. I don't know much about fan fiction. I don't have anything against it. I just personally... Don't read it because the impression I've gotten is that it's a lot about shipping. Yeah, and that's that's, its own that's not the aspect of fiction that I tend to be interested in. I'm more into like picking apart the world building. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's a thing fan fiction does. I just get the impression that it's mostly about making these two characters kiss, and I don't. It's not. Maybe your thing. It's not mine.
0: It's. I don't go for the shipping stuff. I never really did. I actually can't stand romance books. Like, I'll read a good fantasy novel, and then two characters kiss, and I'm like, oh, they ruined the whole thing. I read as though I'm an asexual. I'm not, but I read as though I I am. I don't mean that to co-opt asexual spaces, etc. I just, I don't read for romance. It's not what I'm into, but... Nor do I. But I will say there's, um, there can be a lot of really interesting world building. There's a lot of, like, really high quality Star Wars fan fiction, in terms of exploring the world getting deep into like mandalorian lore for instance or like whatever a lot of it is just like let's make the, the two bros kiss and that has damaged a lot of i in my opinion a lot of young readers primarily because um i'm getting a bloody nose that's interesting fun uh. Hey, future Zoe here. The random nosebleed cut off this tangent, but to clarify the point itself, egregious shipping of male friendships can damage young readers from understanding what healthy male friendships actually look like. And this can pressure young men into toxic masculinity and not showing care and love to their friends for fear of coming across as queer if they're not, or if they're closeted or for whatever other reason, especially if others around them make comments about that shipping culture or, you know, queerness, and just pushing that sort of sexuality onto them. Social pressures are enormous when you're growing up. And since fanfics are a large percent of what some teens read, especially young female teens, it can have a massive effect on how they perceive and act in the world. And that's essentially the point I wanted to make on that.
1: Future Mac would also like to make the quick point that we're not saying fandom and fanfic bad, just that you should be conscious of toxic aspects of media you consume, and that those toxic aspects do definitely exist within fandom culture. Now, back to the actual episode.
0: Yeah, I think I got cursed for speaking of fanfiction.
1: We should probably wrap up the fanfiction thing. (laughs)
0: Yes, yes. Anyway.
1: Yes, there's one more review that we, we have been not reading.
0: So. This is from Duke Biscuit. I absolutely adore this podcast. I've listened to the first 50 or so episodes in a little over a week. Holy.
1: Yeah, uh, doing some quick back of the envelope math there. Our episodes tend to be just under two hours. So if you assume 10 days, 100 hours, this person is listening to us like it's their full time job. I I think we like took over this biscuit's life for a week and a half. Yes, yes. So I'm sorry about that.
0: Also, like. Thank you first off, but also, are you okay if you need help? like if this is a cry for help, let us know.
1: <laughs> like it's it's entirely possible that they have a job where you can wear headphones the whole time and no one cares.: Those are nice.: Yeah, in which case it would absolutely be completely like it would make sense, yeah, or maybe they just spent a week spending all of their free time listening to us, which is very flattering. yeah,
0: indeed, anyway, and I love how much I've learned. Zoe and Mac do such a great job explaining the stories. And I love all of the little tangents. Yay! So thank you so much.
1: Also, I've just noticed that all of these reviews are from the US. So like, international listeners, let your voice be heard.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That also might be like a, what are we allowed to see sort of thing?
1: Yeah, maybe it's a a settings thing. Yeah,
0: who knows? We'll, We'll figure it out. But anyway, thank you listeners and Merry Christmas slash Winter Solstice slash... Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, and other associated winter holidays that I cannot currently think of at the moment. Yes. Or I'm not aware of. And I suppose we'll see you all in the new year. New things are coming, including the tournament. That'll be yes. just around the corner. So stay tuned for that. And thank you for your submissions.
1: I'm still disappointed that this story did not start in the forest of Burzee, That's where we all know Santa Claus comes from.
0: I mean, there is North Pole, Alaska. It's entirely Christmas-themed. The entire town is Christmas-themed. I believe that. It's it's kind of wild.
1: Also, yes, that joke was for the exactly one other person who probably is out there who read that book as a kid.
0: Well, it went over my head.
1: The Wizard of Oz guy, L. Frank Baum, wrote a book about Santa Claus.
0: Oh, interesting. Did not know that. All right. Anyway, listeners, have a wonderful holiday, and we'll see you for the new year. Yes. Thank you for listening to The Maniculum Podcast. Please consider leaving a rating and review on iTunes to help support us. If you're interested in exclusive merch and continuous exclusive content, consider becoming a patron on Patreon. To see our sources and our notes, check out our blog on themaniculumpodcast.com. And hey, come get involved in our community. We have a Discord group that you can join, and you can find links to our server on our Facebook group, The Maniculum Podcast, our Twitter, at Maniculum, and our Instagram, at Maniculum Podcast. Original music by Walker. Check out their project, Sugar Glass, on Spotify.
1: I know this is another tangent, but I have to mention it. I swear to god I have that exact flannel. It's LL Bean. <laughs> <laughs>